Hello and welcome to the Inquisitor podcast. My guest is Jay McBain, who is the lead analyst for Forrester in and around the channel. Jay, could you give a quick introduction to who you are for people who don't know you? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. I'm Jay McBain. I do work for Forrester. I spent 26 years in the channel, most of that working as a channel chief on, on the vendor side for companies like IBM and Lenovo. Also uh, was the CEO and founder of a channel software company for seven years before joining Forrester. I thought what we'd talk about is with COVID-19, the impact it's having on business generally and how you can use your channel in order to take advantage of their local knowledge, their local relationships, so that you don't lose momentum and how important it is for channel managers to be working with very closely with their partners, helping them to sanitize and their funnel, make sure they've got good CRM hygiene, they can prioritize where they're going to invest time and resources and don't get sucked into the trap of just doing lots of duck shoot demos, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts on the current situation? Well, first and foremost, uh, the thoughts change a little bit around the world. So my U.S. thoughts are a little bit more serious than you know, some of the countries that have crested at the moment. But I put out a piece last week quantifying the potential impacts on the channel. And first and foremost, in the best case scenario, and the best case we define as starting to flatten the curve, hit a plateau in the next month or two, and we have a pretty rapid recovery in third and fourth quarter. In that best case scenario, we're going to see about a $47 billion decline in channel revenue globally. So it's $47 billion. $47 billion. So we had begun the year predicting a five, well, pretty close to a 5% increase in channel revenue and in overall IT spend. I did predict that the channel revenue was going to grow slightly lower than the direct, but still you know, robust on both sides. And we've lowered that official guidance to about a 2% growth, which by the way, it's still on, in the positive, it's still in the green. But the difference between you know, growing at almost 5% and 2% you know, wipes $50 billion almost off of the channel. That is a best case scenario with a V you know, recovery you know, kind of bouncing back to by the end of the year where we started the year. And, you know, there's obviously opportunities in that. You know, right now we hear 72% of partners out there have seen a boost in revenue and a boost in opportunity as they've had to triage all of their clients, which included getting everyone laptops, getting them, you know, signed up to either, you know, VPNs, edge security, VDI, a bunch of opportunities there. Obviously, UCAS has been the biggest, probably bright spot. So companies like Microsoft with Teams added 12 million new active users last week. To give a perspective, that's bigger than Slack overall in terms of users just in one week. And Slack itself has not been slacking. They signed up 7,000 new users you know, in the course of about a week. Zoom, which uh, we're on right now, signed up more customers in the first quarter than they signed up all of last year. 
WebEx, you know, in a week in March, had over 3.2 billion meetings and 5.3 billion minutes of meetings. Say that one again. So WebEx, yeah, Cisco, yeah, had 3.2 billion meetings in a wow. week in March, <laughs> and about 5.3 billion minutes. So there's four examples of where UCAS has hit it out of the park. But this is all best case scenario. So I also looked at the CDC, which put out scenario A, B, C, and D. And that's uh, in the US, scenario D had somewhere between 200,000 and 1.7 million people passing away due to COVID. So very serious and stratospheric type of circumstance. And you know, I didn't even quantify scenario D because of the human impact. Uh, I didn't even want to go into what the business impact would be. I was speaking to a colleague of mine, and he's in data, and he's saying that 450,000 businesses in the UK are at risk of going into bankruptcy in the next three weeks. You're absolutely right. So if you took that into the channel, just in the US channel, actually, I could do it globally. If you look at the global channel, there's 600,000 VARs, managed service providers, and other types of resale type of channel partners, transactional partners. Right now, and I'm going to say before this crisis, you know, we had 11 years of really strong economic results. You know, the stock markets hit highs every day. Unemployment was almost at 0%. So the healthiest business environment you could have probably imagined if you're a technology solution provider. Yeah. And in that environment, 25% of them were either, either losing money or struggling to break even. Wow. So this is a, a, a group of companies that do not have effective credit lines. They don't have lifelines of, of much. They don't have access to capital. And if we do not recover in third quarter, and you know this pushes into a recession if it nears 2008 type of recession lack of revenue lack of payments lack of ar roughly about a quarter and you know i, I mentioned 600,000 like 150,000 global channel partners could be affected in the uk alone you know that could be upwards of 3 to 4,000 partners going out of business well i think it was forbes was suggesting that the UK could lose as much as 15% of GDP with a combination of Brexit and COVID-19 because we've run out of runway from the Bank of England. They've got interest rates at 0.1%, so they can't use interest rates to correct things. The credit crunch is probably going to be looming because for the last 10 years, business has been drinking off the teeth of the banks with low interest rates. So they're up, uh, they've got significant debt. And as interest rates climb, which will normally happen with credit crunch, they won't be able to service that. And the government is printing money, which is going to likely lead to inflation. We've got $30 a barrel oil price, although Russia and Saudi have apparently come to some arrangement today. In 2008 to 10, we were declining by 3%. 15% in a year is just like you know the meteor, volcano, and tsunami all hit at once. 
It's a, it's a frightening prospect. It's the perfect storm. The UK has just slightly less than $3 trillion in GDP. And uh, it's an unbelievable you know, set of circumstances going on there. The US has over 20 trillion, just slightly over 20 trillion in, in GDP. And it's becoming quickly the epicenter. The government at this point is, you know, talking about almost, uh, you know, best case now of 82,000 deaths and upwards of 240,000 given the trajectory here. And that's a, a medium-sized city. It's an absolute calamity here. And people like to measure this up against the flu and they measure it up against, you know, fatalities and watching car accident fatalities you know, watching it on Facebook here unfold over the last six weeks has been a study of humanity, has been a study in psychology, yeah. you know, as people have moved from, you know, this is false fake news, this is just nothing, this is a foreign hoax. It's the Democrat hoax. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it's moved on. You know, early in this, by the way, everything in the U.S. is very polarized, as you know. Everything gets politicized. and because the some of the leaders on both sides took a very different take and the media fox news in the us took a different take on it you know with that hoax idea we had 61% of one side republicans thinking this was no big deal and only 30% of democrats thinking this was no big deal so talking about a a division based on politics to yeah. a human crisis and those early weeks were what caused a lot of the spikes that we're seeing today in terms of lack of preparation, lack of testing, lack of ventilators, and the infrastructure to be able to have handle this, and really the capabilities to flatten the curve were severely weakened in those first few weeks. And just now, I think yesterday, my governor in Florida issued the stay-at-home order for 30 days, and you know we're well up the bell curve now, and um, it's going to help, but very late in the game to be... Uh... The Georgia governor, yesterday I saw him saying, oh, we didn't realize that people who are asymptomatic could pass it on. Now, I mean, yesterday, for God's sake, it could have some really interesting political ramifications because depending on death rates, if it goes towards the worst case scenario, that's the difference in the marginals. And if the Republicans have been congregating, up until yesterday, lots of them still were in... I was uh, talking to a friend of mine in Alabama and they still had crowds and restaurants were full and they just had no idea. Anyway, you know, politics aside, uh, you know, this is a human issue. One of the biggest things that impact channel partners is the human capital side of it. For any other small business in other industries, you know, if you own a restaurant, uh, you've already furloughed, you know, most of your employees, you know, laid them off until obviously there's a back to work order. Uh, but other industries, you know, the big retailers and everything where crowds come together in your business have been able to furlough their employees. But the number one issue before this crisis for channel partners is finding, hiring, and retaining the best talent. Yeah. And if they were to furlough their people, guess what happens? Those people wouldn't come back. They would go and find a job at a larger, safer, maybe more robust benefits type of job. Maybe they go work for a local government. They go work for a local utility. Maybe they go work for Microsoft or AWS. The fact of the matter is, 
you know, after something like this, it reminds you of some of the risks of working for, you know, the average channel partner has eight people. So it reminds you of the risks of working for a very small company. And, um, you know, this could be worse for the channel if they lose what is their number one asset, which is people. And um, so they can't lay off people. They can't furlough people. And that's what exasperates the slowdown in spending and, uh, you know, perhaps the difficulties coming up in the next few months once we're past this initial triage is that they have to somehow protect their people without having the cash flow to do that. And I think that's the number one issue out of all of this. What I'm seeing a lot of through my network is they're stopping any non-essential spend. A load of the important IT projects that are strategic are being put on mothballs whilst they try and deal with this panic. There's very little, or very few people are really thinking about the key strategic issues that are going to lie ahead over the next three to 12 months. And there's a lot of this panic mode. They're going into almost like a mourning process where you know, they're, they're going through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and trying to maintain the motivation and engagement of the partners, I see as being an absolutely huge issue for channel managers. And this is really where I think those who coach are consistently working in the businesses of their partners will have a massive advantage. I mean, last year, we did a research study And it identified that only 13% of sales teams globally hit quota as a team, and only 44% of salespeople hit quota. My suspicion is that the 13% will probably stay relatively close to that number because they've got good managers, but the 44% will drop. I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of within the channel. What percentage of partners have been hitting the expected targets, and what impact that's going to have? on the top performers versus the average performer? Yeah, it's a great question. And we're, we're seeing this in phases. Like I said earlier, 72% of partners currently, and this was based on a CompTIA survey, are seeing a rush or a surge in opportunity. Yep. And this is the, what I'll call stage one, which is the triage stage. Getting laptops, getting VPN, doing edge security, doing everything that's necessary to move Every worker in the United States, I think 80% of the workers are now home-based, moving them to the to home and making everything remote. That's been an incredible feat. And you know, I'll, I'll talk later about the branding and the, the benefits that have come from that in terms of recognizing local businesses, distributed channels as really, really important, and now in bad times and good. Uh, the second phase is once the patient is triaged, now it's the, you know, the immediate care and the applying near-term you know, solutions to help weather the storm. So as, as you said, almost every business is going into cash reserve mode. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows because we're still on the hockey stick going upwards here. No one has a prediction of when this starts to crest and plateau. So every business right now has put pretty well everything on hold. There's you know, no hiring happening right now. There's no major projects going through. And that even in the businesses that haven't put an official cut on these projects, just having everybody at home and getting them outside of their normal working rhythm has just delayed projects anyway. 
you know, the 5.5 people that are involved in every decision are now having to get together on WebEx and Zoom and phone calls. And, you know, this priority has kind of moved to the back for them, especially technology people who are in that triage mode themselves with taking help desk calls and getting everybody functional. So the phase two uh, is going to be really interesting. It's going to be based around a few things. Number one, security. You're starting to see every day now different levels of attacks, people taking over, for example, the login to Zoom. Mac, you know, as reported yesterday, has issues where people could take over your microphone and camera through Zoom. Many of these UCAS tools haven't been fully pressure tested, and we're starting to see that now. Even Teams had some outages and, and things like that. So, but in raw security, we're seeing some interesting phishing going on now ransomware attacks and other things that are now based on COVID. So hackers have kind of changed their tactics to this new remote working. So when you're in your home environment, you may not be as vigilant on phishing attacks through email. Dog is barking, your kid's on your lap, they're doing their homework, everything's happening, you're in a different environment. And you may be more likely to click on a phishing banking link than you would be in the past. Or in the U.S., the stimulus dollars that are coming. You know, we now have scams over the phone with the, you know, the government phoning people for their banking details on where to deposit the money. And, you know, all these things that happen, and this is the worst of humanity that takes advantage of these things, but from an IT environment perspective, yeah. you have to come in and shore up these new threat vectors, these new parameters. What my MSP clients are also seeing is a massive increase in shadow IT. And that's adding to the fact that, you know, it's just creating more backdoors as people are using their own devices, they're spending more time on their home routers without proper security, all that kind of stuff. So CTOs must be pulling their hair out. We did. We moved, you know, our entire IT infrastructure to a consumer infrastructure. So when laptops got sold out, HP and Dell and Lenovo sold out of their enterprise class laptops almost immediately. Everybody went to Amazon and other places to get consumer-grade notebooks to get people going. So it's got a consumer-grade Windows on it. It's got, obviously, nothing in terms of hardened security. There's no fingerprint reader. There's no biometrics. There's no two-factor authentication. So we're walking around with consumer devices on our consumer network, running through our consumer router and network you know, that we buy from our local cable company that wires to the street and we share that network with all our neighbors. So again, there's an entirely different vector of threats here that people are dealing with. This is phase two. Nobody did this in phase one because we had to get up and going and productive. But the edge security, the network security, the data security, the web security, part of phase two as well, there's a surge to web. So the SaaS applications are seeing a major uptick in demand. So some of those projects that were transformational, moving on-premise to cloud, are being accelerated in phase two and getting people more productive, regardless of where they are and what type of device they're on, is becoming paramount. And so that's a you know, second major opportunity in phase two. The third is really around automation and workflow and business logic. It's getting things that used to be done by people in the office, whether by running around or doing specific things in an office environment, 
and starting to look at automating those things. Some of them just aren't being done right now. And you know, one of those is paying the bills, which is affecting the channel. <laughs> so how do you get some of these more human tasks to be more automated and to take humans out of the equation? Because as we see during this crisis, a lot of our businesses rely on humans touching every process. And I think one of the biggest opportunities to come from this, and I'm talking for the next three or four years, will be around RPA, robotic process automation, BPA, business process automation, business process outsourcing, BPO. In those areas, we're going to start to interrogate every process and perhaps look to take humans out of them as much as possible. And that will be a a major channel opportunity. But again, most of the channel is going to need to be skilled up in that area and uh, double down in terms of what that takes and what a project looks like and how to charge for it and, and how to help your client you know, really look at each of the workflows and, and logic that goes on in the business. You know, A few other opportunities in phase two is taking another look at disaster recovery and redundancy. So the whole business continuity has been disrupted due to this. You've hardened the environment in an office environment on-premise, but now that you have these consumer devices, and the average person might be you know, on their iPad, they might be on their phone, they might be on their you know, consumer-grade laptop, you know, whatever it is, that they might be on Alexa, you know, they, they could be on all these devices. So the question is, what is the backup and redundancy and what is the protection for this new, very decentralized IT environment today? Now, that's a phase two conversation to have. Just a quick question. One of the things that I'm seeing a need for, because as people have moved away from the office, where they could work around the clunkiness of their systems, which have become fat and complex, is a drive towards simplification and streamlining. Because now you can't get around the fact that you could do a human workaround. And are you seeing any of that? Yeah, I think that extends directly into that automation. For the things that can't be completely automated, you know, there might be a compliance reason or a governance reason. There could be a, you know, a specific reason that you need a human to come in and provide intelligence that AI wouldn't provide. In those cases, though, rather than creating 27 steps for the human to get in and assess and look at everything, I think you're exactly right. How do we get this in a way that the systems are predictive and prescriptive to say that here's all on one screen, here's all of the pertinent data that you need as a human to make the decision. And because it didn't fall within our acceptable guidelines for our algorithm to run it, there's some edge case here or there's something that's you know knocking this out of our AI's capability, but we're going to serve it all up And we're going to kind of prescribe for you or recommend what the algorithm would have done, but we would like your approval on that because we're not sure. It doesn't meet our 90% confidence rate. So it could be a big green button there once you're served up all the information you need. And maybe that user has the ability to drag and drop that information in the way that they want to see it. So think of a dashboard where I would love to know this and this data point, and the system can go and get it. I would like to know as it's compared to last year, the system would automatically you know, build out that review. 
I would like to know how this compares to, you know, this, this. So maybe a human can interact and ask questions and build out a dashboard that has the right information before they press that green button. And instead of having an IT person do it or the, the company itself, the software company itself, having to go re-architect that, everything becomes very much low-code, no-code environments where you know, each of these human decision-makers are in control of the situation. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the ease of doing business. And if I'm faced with a big green button and I've got all the data I need on one screen, you know, I maybe just saved 30 minutes and, and can now do it in three minutes. So if the channel is going to, if the new normal is that more people will be working remotely, and my view on this is that given that it's likely to be, I mean, we're, t- we're talking probably in the UK earliest, we're going to start seeing these restrictions lifted in any sort of volume will be September. So people would have had six, seven months of working from home. The obvious question is, do we need all this office infrastructure? Do we need all this office space? People have grown used to it. And I don't think we'll ever get back to what was normal. The new normal will be that more and more people in most uh, or many service industries where they don't need to be in the office will be spending two, three, four days working from home or never go into an office. And it's going to have some really interesting ramifications for the need for people to manage differently, to recruit differently. I mean, I was speaking to one of our partners today and they, all of their staff from day one work from home. So it requires a very different approach to recruitment and hiring and onboarding and looking for a particular personality type that is very organized and structured. And I'm really curious to see how that translates into how channel managers will modify their approach when they're looking at recruiting partners and identifying the salespeople and consultants that they want to work with versus just taking everybody willy-nilly. Any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, we had the pendulum swing so far and so fast. It's unprecedented in our lifetime. What happened here with the speed and efficacy of what just happened? I don't think the pendulum ever swings back fully. It's going to come back and land in a certain spot. And it's going to be somewhere in the middle. You know, it'll probably be closer to where we were as opposed to where we are now. But the fact of the matter is you're right. I, I think there's a new thinking in the future of work. And, you know, people in the future of work used to think in terms of decades. You know, what are we going to do in the 2030s, the 2040s, the 2050s? I think we just accelerated the future of work by over a decade. And so, you know, we've got the tools, we've got the systems now. You mentioned CRM earlier, but, you know, having salespeople resident on a sales floor has some advantages. You know, there's obviously some camaraderie, there's some cross cubicle learning, there's all these, you know, great effects. But if you hire the right sales professional that is very digitally nimble, and, you know, is the new digital normal. And this goes for channel leaders as well. They're going to effectively, and on our last call, we talked a lot about community management. You know, that yep. ability, like we did this morning, you and I, you know, woke up this morning and we did some social media and we did some, you know, wrote, wrote a blog. And then now we jumped on this Zoom meeting. We're going to get off this Zoom meeting and we both have a podcast that we're going to do at noon. 
And then we're going to jump from that. We're going to go over to do so. So that's the new digital normal. And what's interesting is I actually have an algorithm and I count the top 100 super connectors in the world, in the channel, and I publish it. And, you know, the number one person that landed on that list traveled 312 days last year. And I started to look at my own algorithm and I said, I favored people's FaceTime. So I give them credit for keynotes. I give them credit for showing up at events and being on the board of associations. And, you know, I didn't give them enough credit for their digital, how engaged they were in LinkedIn groups and Facebook groups, whether they were on the front cover of a magazine, how many podcasts they did. You know, I don't think I favored that part of my algorithm enough. I gave them points for it, but I tended to give them more points for pressing the flesh. And I I think my algorithm now changes with this new normal as well as maybe that person who came number one on that list who traveled 312 days, maybe that person's struggling in the 30 different digital vehicles inside these communities. If you can't have a beer with somebody at the hotel lobby bar, what is your second way of building that trust and building that relationship and really building that sales? if one or your top one or two techniques have been taken away from you, or if those are going to be dropping by 20% in the new reality, how do you pick up that 20% of sales and do it in new ways? This is all about hiring. It's all about, you know, you know, setting up people that know how to do this at scale. Do you think this will then favor millennials over fossils like me? I don't think so. I, I don't think being digitally astute and understanding and, you know, training yourself as well. Like you're like we learned 20 years ago, you're not born to be a salesperson. And Sandler has been saying this forever. Yeah, absolutely. You can be trained to be a great salesperson. You don't manage your territory with your gut. You manage it with techniques and tools. And, you know, I've been using Sandler training since very early in my career to build what those techniques and tools are that work for me. So in the new digital world, and, you know, Sandler's going to make a big move here. You've already got, you know, books and courses and all kinds of training built on this new digital normal. This is where a big piece of your business is going to go, is building out this future of work for salespeople, for channel salespeople, for channel community managers, for channel marketers. All of them, especially right now while they're at home, should be you know, sucking up as much training as they can and figuring out what the best practices are and, and what can work for them to you know, get ready for this new normal. And, and that's a big opportunity now for all generations. This has nothing to do with age. I was being a little bit glib, but yeah, fair point. And in terms of how vendors need to start thinking differently how they value the channel, because again, there still seems to be a prevalent view in many vendor organizations that the channel is the ginger-haired, bastard, ugly stepdaughter of direct sales. And there is a question over how much leadership values them. I'm curious about your thoughts in terms of if you're seeing any shift there politically or philosophically around how leaders in vendors are viewing the channel. It's a multi-part answer. Uh, The the first part is every vendor right now is in triage mode the same way their partners are. 
And, you know, we're seeing some great announcements every day programmatically of vendors that are relaxing their tiers, their revenue tiers, grandfathering in last year's tiers, paying their partners faster, coming up with economic stimulus for their partners. You know, we're seeing some new programs geared to this scenario and in this crisis. So, you know, we've got hundreds of vendor announcements that I've seen just over the past week that are there to help free up some capital. The distributors are coming in with uh, banking and credit and capital type of announcements. So that's the triage. But now vendors, and we're having conversations with, with all the major vendors right now, is what does phase two look like given this new normal? And you know, vendors themselves have to start thinking about their people. We've already talked about. They have to think about their processes, you know, kind of the automation of their processes. They have to think about their programs, which, you know, you and I have talked in the past. They're very geared to that transactional gold, silver, bronze type of model. But as you mentioned so eloquently before, we're moving into kind of more of a shadow IT environment here. Before this crisis, if you look at cloud, 65% of cloud purchases were made outside of IT. And I kind of used to mention that that's moving to 80%. But given people working at home right now, and given this surge to move to you know, cloud infrastructure, you know, based on this remote work, 65% may end up to be 80% by the end of this crisis, you know, by the end of 2021 or so. So in that environment, you start to study those new buyers in the line of business. And 73% of them find it very convenient to buy direct, to buy through e-commerce. And what the fastest growing is to buy through marketplaces like on the Salesforce app exchange or to buy through AWS or Microsoft's online app stores. So the actual selling, reselling of uh, and transacting in the channel is going to continue to struggle for the next decade. And direct is going to outgrow it for the next decade. Even if both are growing, direct's going to grow faster. So as a vendor, you've got to start thinking about that and do a couple of things. One is recognize that there's not just a transactional channel. There's a trifurcated channel, which means there's an influence channel that really supports shadow IT, supports their digital journey. And they're the people that are very engaged. And there's an average of five different types of partners in the early customer journey. And what we're finding now is that digital journey is turning into vendor selection without a salesperson ever being involved. So now you need to build out an influence channel That may look like alliances, affinity partners, affiliates, advocates, ambassadors, digital influencers, super connectors, that you have to do attribution now to measure them. The third channel after transaction, so it gets to vendor selection, then the transaction channel, which I suggest not taking away the gold, silver, bronze program because it works very well. It has for 39 years. And then after that, you now have a retention channel because every company has now moved to subscription. So getting that first transaction is basically winning the first month. Then you need to re-earn that client's trust every 30 days forever. So who's in there driving adoption of your product? Who's in there driving integrations to make it more sticky? Who's in there upselling and cross-selling, driving better retention, better renewals? Those are all questions that vendors haven't really asked themselves. And while they're quickly changing all of their product, and this is every industry, this is not just the tech industry. Every industry is converting into subscription. And they got to start recognizing who are those partners, the consultants, the integrators, 
It could be digital agencies. Who are those people in there with their clients forever, making sure that you stay 100% engaged and adopted and you never get kicked out the door? That's your third channel. That's a retention channel. So that comes up as properties as well. Yeah. So again, I think what we've got to recognize is that the glamour has usually been associated with new business. But the profit, what you keep matters more than what you make. And if you are letting business go out the back door after having spent a small fortune to acquire it, then you're making a monumental strategic error. And again, I think this it requires the channel management to focus on teaching the partners how to communicate with the line of business, which again, I, I see do a lot of work with MSPs and SIs and VARs. And they struggle to get out of IT. They just don't speak the language. They, they're not comfortable with that. So in terms of shifts, in terms of the channel training programs that vendors need to be offering, the kind of collateral, the kind of business acumen training, what are you seeing the best in the world doing? Yeah, so right now, it's obviously understanding the digital elements of this, also understanding the community elements of this as well. So we're starting to see a shift now to understanding that as a vendor, even if you're the one of the biggest vendors, like a Microsoft or a, a Dell or a Cisco, you're understanding that you are one of at least 10 vendors that take prime at that partner. And there's probably 20 other vendors as well. So there is no single vendor relationship. It's how you play in the broader ecosystem, how you gain mind share, and how you train your partners to be better community managers as well. Playing in the digital game of where your customers, what they read, where they go, the people they follow, the influencers, super connectors that they follow, getting after that as much as just the day-to-day, hand-to-hand combat. One of the stunning statistics out of all of this shadow IT and new line of business decision makers today making two-thirds of all tech decisions is that in 71% of cases, right from the digital journey of figuring out what they need to do digitally, they make vendor selection. So before ever talking to a salesperson. So if you're a vendor, you may have lost a deal before you ever knew there was a deal. So the days of it hitting your top of funnel and you having a conversion rate and you know exactly what the step down is to win, it's not happening anymore because upwards of two-thirds of the cases, you could be out of the loop and it never hits your top of funnel unless you're doing the right training for your partners to hit you know, into those other conversations outside of IT and to get into collaboration with other partner types who are already there. I mentioned upwards of five partners. And we had a session last time on shadow channels. And it could be an accountant. It could be a digital agency. It could be an ISV, IHV. It could be an M-Tech company. It could be an everything as a service, infrastructure, platform type of consultant in there. It could be you know, those different influencers, affiliates and ambassadors that I just talked about. So you know, when I just worked with a, a major vendor yesterday, We outlined 16 different business model types who are in front of the customer early having the conversation. 
So if the traditional channel, the transactional channel wants to play, they're going to have to, you know, go meet those, you know, on average, five different partners in the room early in the journey and play well in the sandbox to be able to participate in these kind of new decision models, in these new sales, mo- uh, sales journeys. I interviewed a very interesting chap, John Bedwani. Have you come across him? No. John specializes in authentic relationship management, and he gets brought in by clients. He's the heavy artillery. So for two years before a sale is made, he and his team are engaging with the line of business, and they're discussing with them what their strategy is, what their vision is, what their plans are, the threats that they're facing, the competitive landscape, the kind of infrastructure they're going to need in order to achieve their vision and their growth targets. And by the time the buyer is ready, they're already warmed up to his clients as a provider so that they're not coming in at that last minute. They're, not, you know, they're in the 71% of cases where they're already talking to the line of business, to the C-suite, to the influencers and the users, the recommenders. And they're developing those relationships based on adding value and that long-term strategic marketing. I think we should, we should take a leaf out of the Chinese book. The Chinese had an empire of a billion people 3,000 years ago. And you know, a lot of Chinese companies work on 100-year plans. And one of my favorite examples that I cite is at the end of the Korean War, the American delegation took three floors on the Hilton for three months. The Chinese delegation rented a five-bedroom house for three years. And I think this then speaks to another shift that I expect needs to happen if we're going to stay competitive, which is there needs to be a shift in away from quarterly numbers and people being held hostage to those because I don't, I genuinely don't believe that it serves the customer and it forces businesses to grow in ways that doesn't always create a sustainable business. Now, if you speak to a lot of private equity, they're perfectly happy to invest in 40 companies in the hope that three will make it through. That seems incredibly wasteful. Are you seeing the way funding is applied affecting the way people are thinking? And are are there any good models that are evolving that allow people to work on building strong, sustainable businesses without having to go for that massive land grab and unsustainable growth? Yeah, it's a a really interesting question. And, uh, you know, this is really a, a phase two, phase three strategic question that, you know, vendors have to ask themselves, partners have to ask themselves. Here's my take. I mean, if I to wrap this right back into um, COVID-19 again, if I look at the way that vendors have laid out their channel managers and the investments they've made, and then on top of that, they have what's called funded heads, which, you know, these are people that you pay in each of your big partners and distributors to sit in a cubicle at the headquarters. And so, as we mentioned, if the pendulum, you know, doesn't come all the way back, which it won't. How are you architecting the costs within your program? The gross to nets, the front end margins, the back end margins, the people. And you know, right now, which is interesting is, 
channel account managers, just from a skill set perspective, are out of sorts. You know, they're used to being on a plane or a, you know, driving a lot of miles every day. And they're having difficulty managing this triage, you know, in purely digital format. Who's even other more who's out of sorts are these funded heads who, you know, are paid to sit there and roam the halls of, and the cubicles of major, of really major uh, distributors and, and, and resellers. So they're at home not knowing what to do. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it's time to start talking about the financial construct of how you set up your organization. And then this goes into your sales organization and your marketing organization and start thinking about efficiency. So if you were to plan your vendor program as a five-bedroom house, like you mentioned, you know, what does that look like? And start asking those questions because we've been stuck on this, you know, same train tracks for for decades with the gold, silver, bronze program and the, the construct of how we deploy resources and everything else. And you know, there's more efficient models to be had there. And with the rise of marketplaces and with the rise of the new buyer, this is exactly the time to start thinking about what that looks like. Very interesting. Uh, there are four books that have been incredibly influential on my thinking. One is Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And the essence of that is do less but better on purpose. Prioritize. Focus on a narrow front in terms of your systems, your processes, and do the least amount possible for the biggest amount of leverage. That's the essence of that book. Loon Shots by Safi Bakal, which is all about how organizations, as they grow, they start out being innovative and creative. And then as they grow, they become more politicized and bureaucratic and new ideas are shot down. The third book is Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed. And his idea, his premise is that organizations that lack diversity have a tendency only to see part of the picture. And as a result, they don't see the whole scenario. So the case he cites, for example, is the CIA. Pre-9-11, the CIA didn't have any Farsi speakers. They didn't have any Muslims. And uh, I think they had two Hispanics in the entire team that was working on anti-terrorism. And so they missed a whole load of stuff. So they didn't understand that when bin Laden was speaking in poetry, that in Islam, that is a, a very high form of communication. And they didn't understand what was going on. And you know, two years before, people appeared on watch list as being a major threat, but they didn't act on it when they ended up taking up flying lessons. So that's um, a really interesting thing in terms of having a very creative set of different opinions where people fight constructively. And then the other one, which I'm very fond of, is Range by David Epstein. And his premise is that people with a general background, a general education, when they focus on a creative area where there is a very narrow focus, they tend to be able to join the dots on things in a much effective way than specialists. And taking all four of those together, my thoughts aren't quite there yet, but it strikes me that the strongest challenger businesses that will be growing will be the ones that take people from a diverse background, encourage creativity and conflict, constructive conflict, where they are lean in terms of headcount, process systems. They're simple and they're very niche and they employ generalists. They're not going to be focused on taking people with 12 years experience of selling CRM systems into the financial sector or whatever like that. 
And in fact, I was speaking to one of our partners uh, today and they recruit people from a really eclectic background and experience is probably the least important factor. What matters is do they have the right attitudes, the right values? Do they have the right habits? Are they planners? Are they well-organized? Are they structured? Can they work independently? Do they have vulnerability in their makeup? Do they lack entitlement? And I'm just curious, coming back to that whole culture and recruitment question, what are your thoughts? It's great. And I actually wrote down the name of those books. So thank you for, <laughs> thank, thank you for walking, walking through them. But when I look at people, and as we mentioned earlier, I measure people. I write quite a bit of research around influencers, and I'm fascinated, you know, in the consumer world about, you know, Kim Kardashian and some of these big Instagram influencers and stuff like that. But, you know, when I actually bring that into B2B, when I bring that into the channel and I start figuring out why do people have influence, who has influence, what's the psychology, what are their behaviors, what are their motivations? Is this just a degree of narcissism they have that they want their name to show up in places? Is this a, you know, a really a feeling of, um, you know, really wanting to give back? Is it, you know, I've dug into all these, you know, pretty hard questions as I've looked at, you know, the people that have influenced. But when I go back to hiring and recruiting, hiring a good channel chief, hiring a good channel community leader in those markets that you want to get to is one of the largest variables for success. And, you know, I can run through multiple unicorn-sized businesses, over a billion-dollar businesses that have been sold based on great channel leadership. So Datto would be an example of a company started 10 years ago in somebody's mother, Austin McCord's mother's basement, and within making a decision to go 100% MSP and then hiring Rob Ray, who is number one on my list, I've mentioned a couple of times, this company got sold for a billion and a half dollars to private equity. ConnectWise, which you know competed in the MSP PSA market, professional services automation, they took a very community approach and they hired community leaders. And you know, IT Nation was the biggest event for MSPs for every year in our industry around the world. And that community approach where their biggest competitor got sold for about $150 million, ConnectWise got sold for $1.5 billion. Just an order of magnitude larger based on hiring the right leaders, the right super connectors, the right influencers, the people that can make it happen at scale and can now make it happen digitally. That would be my book when I get around to writing it, is relating the success of businesses to their channels and to the people that they put in place to make it happen. Do you want to write that together? (laughs) We we could. I think it would be a fascinating uh, look into the, it's more of the how-to. You know, you have all the standard books on recruiting and what to look for and how to do interviews and stuff like that. I think there's other methods you can use, though, to understand somebody's degree or their sphere of influence on others and their ability to amplify that across different channels. And I think it's make or break, whether your program is success or not. Success or not. We know that not always the best product wins. We know that always the best program 
or the richest program doesn't win. So behind that is it's always people. And um, you know, I think it'd be a fascinating look at the industry. Really interesting. Jake, look, we're coming to the top of the hour. What advice would you give people who are looking beyond COVID-19 in terms of their strategic planning? What do you think they really need to prioritize at the end of this quarter and the next couple of quarters beyond? Yeah. So again, we're on this hockey stick upwards. So everyone is in survival mode and triage mode, which they need to be. As you start to understand where the the bell curve flattens and where this starts to crest or plateau, we get into that phase two conversation that we just started, which will be the new normal. Everything wraps around the customer, getting obsessed over your customer and their journey and how to make that happen. You know, the sphere above that of, of influence. It's starting to look at a trifurcated channel. It's starting to look at a new type of organization, you know, very digitally astute and how the future of work, you know, impacts your channel. And then start to look at very much the opportunities. We talked about automation. We talked about disaster recovery. We talked about security. I mean, there's obviously going to be a spike of opportunity that comes from the learnings of this. And you've got to be prepared now. You have to have the skills, the practices, the products. You have to be prepared now for when triage turns into phase two, that you're ahead of the curve. Very interesting. And again, the obvious question to me is, given that not everyone in the organization is going to be involved directly in the triage, they're probably going to be the recipients of it. While people are sat at home, I think now is the time for people to be thinking ahead. They need to be thinking ahead in terms of recruitment. They need to be thinking ahead in terms of strategy. They definitely need to be prospecting now. But I think now it's the time for training. It's time for learning. It's time for planning. And what message would you give to leaders who are so stuck into the panic mode and the triage? in terms of making sure they don't drop the ball on that strategic thinking and planning? It's a great question. There's a personal aspect to this. There's a professional aspect to this, but we're starting to learn now what meetings could have been done in an email. We're starting to understand what shows and and in-person events could have been done via Zoom. For all the time you get back on your commute, for all the time you get back from airports, from all the time you get back from some of these you know, weekly meetings that really probably didn't need to happen. It was just part of your process. Take all that time and put it and invest it back into training. Invest it into looking at the future and build time away, even away from your computer. Just build time away to start thinking about the future. Start to think about what the new normal means for you, means for your organization and your colleagues, means for your partners, and means for your clients. And, you know, start to table some of those ideas and start to table you know, some of these things and use this crisis as an inflection point, both personally and within your organization. Start thinking differently. And uh, you know, coming out of this, you'll be you know, better prepared and obviously better positioned than perhaps your competitors as we get into phase two. One final piece then. What I'm seeing and hearing a lot of is people asking themselves the question, should we be selling now? given what's going on. And I certainly have a view that now is the time that you need to double down on your thinking. 
you need to adapt because the messages that were working two, three weeks ago won't be working now. But it's really important that organizations and you know, vendors and channel managers working with their partners are encouraging them to continue filling the pipeline. Because if they don't, even if they're working on 12-week sales cycles or six months a year sales cycles, what they don't do today, they will pay for tomorrow. And they'll be starting from a standing start. And it, what worries me is that so many organizations have gone into paralysis and they're worried about upsetting their prospects. Uh, they're worried about them thinking it's inappropriate. I think now, particularly in tech, technology is a business enabler. It can allow businesses to make it through this difficult period and come out stronger. But there are so many salespeople out there who have gone into paralysis. What are the best channel managers doing now, today, to work with their partners to make sure that the prospecting is still happening, that the funnel is fit and healthy, it's clean? Yeah, so uh, we may differ on this a little bit. So right now, we're still on the hockey stick going upwards. No one can predict when this plateaus globally. So right now is not the time for advertising. It's not the time for selling. For one out of every four calls you make to a partner right now, they're not thinking about selling. They're thinking about bankruptcy. They're thinking about potentially not being able to pay their mortgage at home. So this is the time for empathy. This is the time for levels of sympathy. This is the, lo- this is the time to roll up your sleeves and do everything necessary to be an essential service for your customers and for your partners. Out of this phase, once we start to see you know, the triage and, the, and this start to crest and the plateau, is the time to now take that branding and the, the work you did to support your community, to support your colleagues and your partners and your clients, and then translate that into a fast bounce back of your funnel. And what might have been a 12 or six month sell cycle, there's going to be some, you know, amped up demand, pent up demand for that. So you might be able to, you know, in third quarter, start filling up some top of funnel that you close in fourth quarter. But right now, I would hate to have anyone call a partner and ask them what they did last week for new orders. Ah, okay. Would, you know, talk to a client. I would, ha- I, I would hate to be in this environment right now and doing a product pitch. Absolutely. But that's precisely the opposite of what I'm suggesting. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. You need to have sympathy and empathy. And I think we need to be having conversations with our prospects and our partners and our clients about, okay, so this is the reality. We're now having to work under these conditions. How are we going to make it through? What is it that we need to do in order to support you so that you're in a stronger position, that you make it through this tough time, that you even thrive through it. I agree, product salespeople who do a pitch, I think are going to get very short shrift. What we're finding with our clients is that if they're having those conversations with them, they're doing the tea and sympathy bit uh, and meaning it sincerely. But then they're moving on to, okay, let's deal with the cold, stark reality of this. Yes, we know that you're hurting. What is it that we can do to ensure that you've got cash coming into the business? How can we help you by looking at the uh, way you're paid or you pay? Is there a way that we can bring additional value? Maybe we pivot and we move to other areas 
of the sales process. So it may be that now what we have to do is look at how you're communicating, what your messaging is, so that when things start to settle down a little bit and people get used to the idea of this uh, environment, then you've got a pipeline. More importantly, you're still in business because you know we're seeing so many companies that are just literally rolling over. They, they, they've, got, they've been winded, but they're not dead. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing a lot of salespeople do is act as if their market is dead. So it, maybe it's a matter of nuance. I don't know. I mean, final thoughts on that? It's all nuance. It's, it's all in uh, you know, how it's perceived. And you, know, you go back to the old adage, it's all in how somebody reads you. If yeah. you're coming off as pushy, if you're coming off as, you know, with another agenda in mind, you know, people are going to read through it in, in this time. Level of anxiety is high. Level of people's mental state, obviously, personally and professionally is, is affected right now. And these yeah. things are going to be amplified in, in their mind. And they're going to remember it, you know, six months from now, if you came off and, you know, you were less than authentic. They're also going to remember the flip side. If you rolled up your sleeves in a time of crises and you did everything you could, whether you're getting paid or not, you did everything you could, you know, that's the bounce back idea here as a professional, regardless of who you work for. That's, you know, somebody in the community. And then obviously the the company you work for will get that positive feedback as well. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm not sure whether you agree with me, but the kind of channel manager that in the good times was phoning up and saying, what have you got for me? Probably wasn't a very good channel manager and their calls were seen as an interruption rather than bringing value. So yeah, I'm not convinced that those people are going to make it through this period anyway, because when things go back to normal, they're the ones who will have gone to ground and put their head in the sands and they won't have been rolling up their sleeves and um, helping out. You're absolutely right. Excellent. Jay, thank you very much. This has been really insightful. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the responses. How can people get hold of you? I'm all over. So on Twitter, it's Jay McBain. On uh, LinkedIn, feel free to link in with me and we can have a conversation there. I'm on Forrester, so you can look for my Forrester blog, which is all things channel. Uh, I'm at Jay McBain at Forrester.com. So it doesn't matter which way, reach out and uh, happy to have a conversation. Excellent. Jamie McBain, thank you very much. Thanks. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please comment, like, share, and subscribe. If you've got questions for either myself or Jay, then please get in touch. And if you think you know somebody or you would be a great guest for the podcast, then please get in touch at mkauke at sandler.com. Happy selling and stay safe.